Well, welcome again. If you are here for the first time, we want to tell you what a privilege it is to have you in worship. Even if you're here for the second time, or I guess third time, you're still welcome. We're glad that you're here. We're honored that you would give us part of your Sunday morning. Hopefully people are really nice to you and you meet Jesus and then that's fantastic and that's our whole goal. But we are glad that you're here. As I mentioned during our announcements, we are in this sort of buildup. This is the single greatest week in all of human history, right? These next eight days, counting today and next Sunday, mark the single greatest week in all of history, leading up to the single greatest day in all of history. And historically, Palm Sunday is one of those days that the Easter kind of leads up to Easter. We mark on our calendars as kind of this special, magnificent day that's leading us to this really glorious day. And so each year we kind of take a different approach to Easter. And I looked back and it's been six years or so since we've really looked at this text. So I'm kind of excited to revisit it. We've always been in the middle of a series and so we've just kind of kept going. But we're on the brink of starting some new stuff after Easter that we're excited about going into the summer. And so it leaves a perfect time for us to really explore historically what's unfolding this week and what's going on around this day that we we call Palm Sunday. And it's a, it's a period in history that's really important because it's marked with both anticipation and upheaval. It's marked with both joy and disappointment. It's crowned with both triumphant things and the deep desperation of failure. All of this is wrapped into one single great amazing week. And it's marked by this beginning where Jesus makes his way into the town of Jerusalem. And we're going to be looking at these things this morning that unfolded on this day in history through the lens of expectations, because expectations are extremely powerful. And we all have them, whether you know it or not. We have expectations. We came in here this morning. What do we expect out of worship or expect out of service or what our hopes are? What do we expect out of our own relationship with Christ? What do we want God to do for us, right? We bring those expectations to the table. And so we're going to be looking at this encounter or this story, if you will, in Matthew 21 of Jesus coming in, this triumphal entry, this entry point into Jerusalem through that lens. Now, it's a really crazy time in Jerusalem, right? Like things are at this weird uh, kind of frenzied, fevered pitch. The Israelites are under Roman occupation. Um, They have been occupied by Rome for some time now. Now, they have the ability to semi-govern themselves, but the Romans are still all throughout the city They can't carry out the full host of who they are. They are an occupied people and they are tired of it and they're frustrated and they're waiting for something great. And there's this belief through prophecy that this Messiah was going to come and the people had hoped that this Messiah was going to reestablish Israel as this incredible powerhouse. He was going to reestablish them as this political nation again in the line of David, this great kingdom. And so they were ready for that. And there was hope and belief that this Jesus that was out in the countryside doing things that only at least a prophet could do. They had been hearing stories of, of the heals, uh, healing that had been happening, the blind that were giving sight, the way that he spoke, even the, the words of being someone being raised from the dead. There was hope of this Jesus that was out there in the Judean countryside might just be this Messiah that was going to reestablish Israel as the nation that they were. Not only that, it was Passover. It was this frenzy of people that had made their way from the rural countrysides to come into Jerusalem for one of three pilgrimage holidays. And Passover was the biggest of all of these holidays. And a pilgrimage holiday was a day where the entire family, or at least representatives from the family, would make their way into the city, to the temple, to worship. And if you remember, Passover was the the celebration of God delivering the Israelites from the hands of the Egyptians, right? 
that the uh, Holy Spirit came in and they had marked their doorways. If you remember when God delivered them, they marked them with lamb's blood and the Spirit would pass over those doorways that were marked and actually would lead to this big deliverance. And so Passover was the reminding and the worship of the idea that God had saved them, had passed over them, and had led them out of Egypt. And they got together to celebrate that, and this was the celebration in which the family would come, and once a year they would make a sacrifice for their sins and the sins of their family. And so it was the biggest of all the pilgrimage holidays. So the others, uh, people would still come, but this is the one where everyone came. And you would make the journey in from the surrounding countryside, and you would spend the week in Jerusalem. And so this small town was body to body with people and animals for sacrifice and just sort of frenzy of activity. And so there's this sort of fevered pitch of what's happening with um, historically over Passover and then with the notion that we were tired of being occupied, that people were tired of being occupied by the Romans, and there just might be this Jesus who's the answer. All of that is in the air and it's thick. And you can almost feel it, even when you read the accounts in the Gospels, like it's got this buildup of expectation, of anticipation that something is going to happen. And the people are moved and they're excited. And that's why this week is moved with this sort of air of anticipation. And it's this sort of fevered pitch of kind of a frenzy. And so that's kind of what's unfolding as we step into Matthew 21 and we talk about the triumphal entry when Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem. So let's take a look. If you've got your Bible, I want you to turn to Matthew 21. We're going to be in the first 11 verses. These hopefully are very familiar verses and very familiar story. Uh, if you've been in church at all, I'm hoping that at some point in time, wherever you've been, these are verses that you've explored. They're incredibly important, but I could hear them a thousand times and uh, still be moved at just what God is doing. So we're going to look at those again with all that's going on in Jerusalem and all that's going on in the hearts of the people through this lens of expectation. But before we do that, let's take a moment and let's pray together and then uh, we'll dive into this text. Lord, I do thank you for the opportunity to gather together and worship. We recognize that this is an incredible privilege. There are believers scattered all over this world that do not have this luxury to gather together in community. Um, there are believers that are um, hidden, that are hiding, that are not free to worship. And Lord, we take for granted all the time that we can hop in our car, drive down the road, and go to any one of 1,664 churches in our city and worship. And uh, so this is a privilege. And we are really, really grateful to be able to be here together, but also that you loved us enough to send your son to give us life. That what we're celebrating here is not a moment that happened in the past, but an, an inbreaking and a beginning to a redemptive history that basically saved us. And so, Lord, we are grafted in through the death and resurrection of Jesus into God's people and promise that if we put our hope and faith in Christ, we have salvation, eternal life that begins today. And Lord, there is nothing that I could be more grateful for than the fact that this is not all up to me. And so, Lord, thank you for in the middle of our sin, in the middle of our struggle, that you came to rescue us and that Jesus' entry into, the, into Jerusalem is a picture of you turning the world upside down, of the beginning of the culmination of redemptive history. And so, Lord, this is an amazing story. Take a moment in your own heart and just ask the Lord, just say, Lord, teach my heart. Even if these are familiar verses to you, maybe you've, you've heard them or you've read the story already this week as you think about your own time in Holy Week and just ask the Lord to, to teach you something new this morning or to just renew your heart a little bit. Just whatever you want to whisper, just say, Lord, teach me.
Take a moment and pray for someone around you. We do this each week. If you're here for the first time, this is something we do all the time. We just want to pray for the people around us. Everything that unfolds on Sunday morning is not about you. And so um, we want to be in the habit of praying for other people. So take a moment and pray for your husband or your children. Or if you're here for the first time on your own, just pray for that person in the red shirt or whoever sitting around you. Um, just pray that God would, would teach them, would move in them. Care about the spiritual hearts and movement of people um, that you're worshiping with. Lord, we turn our morning over to you. We ask you to teach us through your word. Lord, you are the revealer of all truth. And so, God, we ask you to reveal truth to us this morning as we study your word and as we look at these incredible, incredible events that unfolded some 2,000 years ago. Lord, we ask this in the risen name of Christ, our Savior and our Redeemer. Amen. So, of course, titles and numbers in your Bible were added much later, right? These letters were written as letters. They weren't written as study guides. And so these titles are not actually part of Scripture, per se. They've been added. But the idea that this is titled, the triumphal entry, is really ironic, right? Or uh, it's at least a paradox on some level because this triumph was not what the people had wanted. Uh, It's going to look very different than what they were expecting. It was a triumph of incredible proportions, but not necessarily in the eyes of the people at the time. And so it's a fascinating story. But this is what's happening in Matthew 21, and we'll go down 1 through 11 this morning. So as they, this being the disciples and Jesus, approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt. Untie them and bring them to me, and if anyone says anything to you, tell them that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on the colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them, and they brought the donkey and the colt and placed the cloaks on them. And Jesus sat on them. And a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and the others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went ahead of them and that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when Jesus had entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred. Who is this? The crowds answered. This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. So it's a familiar story, right? Jesus and the disciples are doing just what everybody else did, which is making their way to this pilgrim holiday or this pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. They were making their way to Jerusalem as all the people did, and they came to this town outside of the Mount of Olives, which is really close to Jerusalem. We've actually stood there, and you can see from the Mount of Olives, they're only a handful of hundreds of yards or so from the actual east gate in the city of Jerusalem. But up on the hill was the town of Bethpage. And as Jesus and the disciples approach the town of Bethpage, Jesus stops them and he says, two of you guys, I want you to go ahead and I want you to go into the town. And what you're going to find there is you're going to find a, a donkey and her baby, right? And I want you to bring them both to me. And if anybody says anything, like, hey, why are you taking my donkey and my baby donkey? You're going to look at them and you're going to say, because the Lord said so. And they're going to give them to you. 
And that's kind of how, that, and so the disciples that ask any questions said, sure, because they've seen these things unfold, right? They know that what Jesus says happens, happens. And so sure enough, they go into the town, they find this donkey and the baby donkey, just like they thought they would. They untie them and they bring them to Jesus. They take their cloaks off and they lay them on the back of this foal. And it says that it was all done to fulfill the prophet Zechariah. Actually, Zechariah 9.9 says that this is what was going to happen. Your king comes to you gentle riding on the back of the foal of a donkey, right? So Jesus places, they place the cloaks on the donkey, the baby donkey. Jesus gets on it and they begin to ride. And it says the people that are with them, right? Now, this is not necessarily the townspeople, but the people that were traveling with Jesus. And a lot of times we think that there were only 12 people that walked around with Christ. Like we think in our heads, Jesus and these 12 guys, but everywhere Jesus went, there were crowds and crowds of people. I mean, crowds of people, thousands upon thousands, wherever he was, they just showed up. And so these people most likely been following Jesus, had been with them, they were in the town of Bethpage, were making their way to Jerusalem and had, had journeyed with them. There were only so many roads into Jerusalem. And so, <clears throat> excuse me, so you got this crowd of people that's gathered and Jesus on the back of this donkey, they begin to all take their cloaks off and lay them in the road. And they begin to take branches from the trees, which some of the other accounts tell us are palm branches. They cut them down or break them off and lay them in the road. And they start shouting, as Don was telling us this morning, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, right? And that word Hosanna really is a proclamation of Psalm 118, which just means save now. Like they are expecting this incredible Messiah, right? This savior, this political king, this hero. And so they're laying these branches and these cloaks and Jesus comes riding into town as he approaches the eastern gate with all this commotion. I mean, imagine the thousands upon thousands of people that are packed in the city of Jerusalem that have just come up from the countryside to celebrate Passover, right? They see this thing unfolding, this parade of sorts heading towards the east gate. And their whole town is stirred. Like Matthew 21 says that all the town is stirred and they're saying, who is this? And they say, this is Jesus, right? This is the prophet, the one from Nazareth, the one that everyone has been talking about. So if we look at this text as a whole, it's really just rich with this idea of expectation. And I believe that the people, both the disciples and the people in Jerusalem and all of Israel, they were, they were just longing with deep kind of heart for this Messiah that was going to come. There was this deep expectation. Life was not what they wanted it to be. And they had this real expectation. I believe they expected a couple of different things. They really expected a conquering hero. I mean, all through the Old Testament, we get the sense that God is doing something different with the Messiah, but people didn't get it. They were occupied by the Romans. The only way to overthrow the Romans was with war. The Romans were notoriously brutal in battle, and they conquered lands, and just like a swarm of locusts just ate through kingdoms. They would leave their guards, their centurions, their people. And you did what the Romans did, said what the Romans said, and lived like the Romans lived, or Caesar would have his way. And we see that all through the New Testament, right? The challenge it was being persecuted by the Romans. We don't walk into a Roman-occupied country and be like, hey, we're good, you guys can head on out of here. Like, that's not going to happen. So they needed a conquering hero. They needed someone that was going to come in and move the people to rebellion or coup to take the Romans and send them packing so that Israel could be the nation that it once was. They expected a conquering hero. The problem, right, or I guess let me put it this way, conquering heroes don't come riding into town on baby donkeys. They come on horses and chariots. They come with mass amounts of people. 
Hunger Games style, right? Coming into the big auditoriums with these rows of people and shows of power riding on some kind of giant stallion or whatever, showing the power that they have. That's a hero. Or coming back in from battle to the cheers of the people as the king rides in. That's a conquering hero. Or at least in our case, the hero should come riding in on the donkey. I mean, they had them both. Jesus said, go and tie the donkey and the baby donkey and bring them to me. So they brought the real donkey, but he rode the baby donkey. Now, I don't know about you. Here's the deal. Middle Eastern people are a small people group. They're not big. But nonetheless, if you're riding on the back of a baby donkey, it's like me on a tricycle. Nobody really needs to see it, right? Like it's just Jesus' feet dragging in the dirt on this animal that has no power, no authority, and no image of control. Probably riding behind the full donkey, which was its mother following. So not even riding the donkey. Here comes Jesus, the conquering hero, right? The people expected this giant Messiah to kind of come running in, riding in like David the warrior. In the line of other kings that had conquered lands. And Jesus, as Zacharias said, comes in gentle on the back of this baby donkey, sandals dragging in the dirt. Not what the people expected. Even what the disciples expected. They also expected a political king. So they needed a conquering hero to overthrow the Romans, but they wanted a political king. They wanted someone to come in and rule. They wanted that king to not only overthrow the Romans, they wanted him to reestablish Israel as a powerhouse in the countryside. To have a king like they used to have, Solomon, David, these incredibly powerful lines, and they believed that the king was going to come from the line of David. And so they thought he would rule like David. And he would reestablish power, the seat of power is Jerusalem. And he would come in and he would establish them as a nation and they would be respected by every kingdom around them once again. And they would govern themselves and they would rule their own way and God would be their God and the king would be their king. And they were waiting for this with deep expectation. Well, it's obvious that they expected a king and it's obvious that Jesus accepted this concept of king because they were paying royal homage. When you laid a cloak down for someone to walk over, that is a symbol of royal homage. It's not something you did for just anyone, right? Basically, it's a symbol. You are too important to walk on the dirt. You're too important to actually have your feet on this. It's like a red carpet, right? You're too important. And so they would take off their own clothes, their cloaks, and they would lay them on the ground. They would get these palm branches or other branches. They would lay them on the dirt. And they would shout, save us, save now, Hosanna in the highest. In other words, you are here to deliver us. You are our king. We bow to you. When you laid your cloak down, you essentially laid your life down and let this political hero, this king, have this moment in which you are unworthy. That's the image there. They were expecting a political king, someone that they could put their hope in, someone they could honor and worship and would lead them in this great national rebuilding, which they had longed for, right? You see it in this imagery. Even the disciples, right, were trying to figure all this out, but they knew they needed something bigger. Luke actually ends his account of the triumphal entry with this. The Pharisees see all this unfolding, and they look at Jesus and say, stop these people from doing this and saying these things. And Jesus looks at him and says, if they don't, the rocks will cry out. 
So in other words, something here is happening, right? I accept this role as king, but the question is what kind of king? They wanted a political hero. They wanted an era conquering hero. They wanted a political king. But they also, really, all this means they wanted a Messiah that would meet their needs. They wanted someone that would come in and give them exactly what they desired, which was freedom from oppression, to no longer live under the thumb of the Romans, to give them identity again as a people, to reestablish them, to give the, the Pharisees and all the leaders their power back, and to give the people a voice, to reestablish the nation, a once powerful nation that was governed only by God, <clears throat> but now was being occupied. They wanted the Messiah to meet all of their needs and their shortcomings. You know, if you think about it for a moment, <clears throat> just in general, we all have expectations when it comes to our own relationship with Christ, right? Like, we have deep expectations of what we want. We want God to, to get us into this school, or hand us this job, or let us date this girl, or to help us get out of this financial situation. Like, we, we even, our prayer life is geared towards the things that we expect from God. God, if I do this, you do that. I show up at church and, and you're faithful in this way. Or God, I come to you with all my things and all my problems and I need you to deliver or heal or do whatever. And not all expectations are bad, but they're steeped in our own relationship with Christ. We expect things out of our Messiah. We expect a certain amount of response, right? Like that I ask God to do this and he will. And when he does it in the former fashion that I want, I'm frustrated. I'm disappointed. And the giant struggle in all this is that God almost always works in the unexpected. You cannot read scripture and see that God does not work and move in the bigger than and the unexpected. This is an exact picture of that, right? They wanted a conquering hero that would conquer Rome. Instead, God conquers death, right? They wanted a political king that would rule a nation. And God becomes a king that would rule the world. The expectations are small compared to the gravity of what God is doing. And oftentimes we expect the same things. We want God to come in and deliver our frustrations or our struggles or our worries or our anxieties. And God says, I am doing something so much bigger in your life that your worries and anxieties are temporary compared to the movement that I have and that I'm doing. And we build our expectations to Christ in terms of what we want to see. And then when we don't see it, we get frustrated and we pull away and we get disappointed. Expectations are powerful. And we're not all that different than the people that were there. Think about what's unfolding in the city, right? So they come riding into town on Palm Sunday, try triumphal entry, into the East Gate. The whole town is stirred and asking. They're shouting, Hosanna, laying cloaks down, palm branches. They're all eager and excited that this could be it. Even if you weren't a full disciple or a follower of Christ at that point in time, you were hearing the things that he had been doing and your heart was stirred for something. That's day one. In four short days, the entire movement of the city turns, right? Now the crowds may be not the same. It may not be the exact crowd that rode them in or rode with them into the east, into the east gate. But nonetheless, the movement of the city had changed. By Thursday, right, things are different. Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples, which we're going to talk about and, and celebrate on Thursday. We call it Monday Thursday, which is basically an, kind of a conversation about the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper. Jesus gathered in the upper room with his disciples. 
And he gives them this meal that we're going to actually celebrate today, communion. He gives them this, this opportunity of worship that will last through centuries. It will draw believers together from all over the world for thousands of years. And then he gets up after that meal and he washes their feet. Judas leaves. Jesus takes a couple of guys and they go out to the Mount of Olives and he begins to pray. And by the time they're done with that, Judas shows up with a crowd. Led by Pharisees and leaders and teachers of the law, along with some of the people that had torches, right? And they came with swords. And Jesus looks at him and says, why do you come with swords? Am I leading some kind of rebellion? He said, you not know at any point in time my father could call down a legion of angels and wipe you all out. He said, but this is all done so that scripture may be fulfilled. And that crowd seizes Jesus. They take him back to the courtyard of the high priest and they put him on a sham of a trial. By the next morning, they've gotten Pilate, who is the Roman governor of the entire area, who wants nothing to do with this, but is thrust upon him. And this giant crowd builds outside of Pilate's place. So a crowd that was part of or perhaps part of this original Jesus, save now, you are the one by Friday is standing outside the governor's gate saying, kill this man. Pilate says, hey, he hasn't done anything. I'm not killing him. And they said, no, you will. And he said, no, I won't. And the crowd begins to get more and more agitated. And Pilate, who's a smart man, who's, remember, occupying a foreign territory to them, essentially, doesn't want the people to rise up. He doesn't want a coup. He's a Roman leader. And so he says, fine, I'll do what you want. But I got to tell you, this guy right here has done nothing. And they're like, we don't care what he's done or not done. We want him dead. And the Pharisees were stirring the crowd up even more. So Pilate says, all right, it's one of your traditions, right? I will hand you over somebody else in exchange for this Jesus. All I've got basically is Barabbas, who's a murderer. And they're like, great, give us that guy. He sounds awesome. We'll take him. But you get to take this one. And Pilate washes his hands and says, I'm innocent of this man's blood. And they exchange the life of Jesus, the one that had given all the sight blind and done the miraculous things, the one who just four days ago, they had laid robes and cloaks in the street and branches on the ground and come riding into town, not as a hero, but as a substitute. And they said, good, you can have this one. Because Jesus, on some level, was not meeting the expectations of the people. They wanted a conquering hero. They wanted a political king. And Jesus came in on a baby donkey. When Jesus gets into town, do you know the first thing that Matthew records that he does? Some other of the accounts place it in different places. But Matthew records that Jesus rides in through the east gate into the temple. And directly following that, he walks into the temple and he begins to just toss tables over. Driving out the money changers, driving out those that were selling the, uh, <clears throat> the doves and the, the animals that were a sacrifice that essentially had been turned into a racket of money that they weren't there for real sacrifices. They had driven the prices up. People couldn't buy them. They had turned the house of God, as Jesus says, into a den of thieves. And so he rides into town. And instead of overthrowing the Romans, he throws over the tables. And he says, you've taken my father's house and turned it into a den of thieves. My house. It's not what the people expected. They want him to ride into town, ride straight over to Pilate's probably, kick the door and say, hey, you're sleeping in my bed. Watch Pilate walk out of town. He doesn't do it. He goes to the temple and said, my own people have destroyed the house of God. 
and his holy anger comes out there. And it, people wouldn't have any part of it. He didn't meet any of their expectations. And so what, well, let's not go that route then. Let's just call for Barabbas. And so in four days, by the time we get to Friday, things have changed completely. They call for Barabbas. Pilate says, fine. They give Jesus over. They have him prepared to be crucified, beaten. He's flogged, crowned of thorns. Remember the whole bit of the story that we'll explore next week. Carries his own cross out to Golgotha, crucified, and people from the same town walk by and spit on him. Hurl insults at him. The same Jesus that came riding in and was going to save them is now crucified. They had wanted a conquering hero, but instead Jesus comes to conquer death, right? They had wanted a political king, but instead Jesus came to rule the kingdom of God. <clears throat> As I was thinking about all this this week, <clears throat> I was deeply just struck by my own expectations of Christ in my own relationship. The things that I expect of Jesus things I long for, and then when he doesn't do the disappointment that I have, that how quickly my memory forgets God's great faithfulness. That when I ask God to do something or I expect something out of Jesus and that doesn't happen, my memory doesn't recall the countless amazing, incredible things that God has done, showed me, and delivered me from. It immediately goes to frustration saying, God, where are you? Just like these people. They forgot everything that he had done for three years, all the miraculous things, all the casting out of demons and healing of the blind and the sick and all the incredible, beautiful things that Christ had done because he didn't meet their needs in that moment. So they're done. And how quickly I get disappointed in my own relationship with Christ because he doesn't deliver me or give me freedom from this or take this anxiety away or, or make this one thing not happen or relieve my pain at all. I quickly forget that for 39 years of my life, or 47, God has been ridiculously faithful, like beyond faithful, has saved me time and time again, has delivered me, has shown up, has never let me fail, has never let me walk alone has covered every corner, and that hasn't always been easy. But he has never left me nor forsake me. But like those people, my expectations, I can turn on a dime. And my trust in Christ becomes disappointment in the blink of an eye. So the question on the table this morning is, what do you expect out of Jesus? Like, what are your expectations, Right? Do you expect this kind of hero, this kind of king, this kind of God who supplies all of your needs whenever you ask? Because the truth is this, Jesus came to take care of our greatest need, the deepest need that we would have, which is we were standing mired in our own sin and death, unable to save ourselves. And Jesus, through the events that unfold this week, and through the resurrection, opens up the door to eternal life that doesn't begin when we die, but begins today. And he has offered us a relationship in which we walk with him, in which he gives us life that John tells us is so abundantly full that it's almost unfathomable. And that God promises never to leave nor forsake. That God promises to meet every need. That he knows what we need before we ever ask that he knows every hair on our head, that he calls us his beloved, that he is in and through and with us at every moment. 
I think it's time for a lot of us to adjust our expectations. Because the king that came is a king that came in love to deliver and not to overthrow, to redeem and not to destroy. See, the king is not coming, the king has come. And the king has come in love. And this table that we celebrate this morning is that picture. It is the extravagant outpouring of Christ's love on the cross, his death and his resurrection. It's the greatest gift that he's given the church because it's the reminder that binds us all together in Christ. That no matter what church you attend, if you proclaim the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we are united by that table. And during this week when they celebrated it for the first time, it would knit together those hearts that didn't even understand yet what was unfolding. On Thursday, when Jesus is going through this table with them, they had no idea that in a few short hours, a crowd would come with torches and take their Lord and beat him. Yet this becomes the centerpiece of truth. Our expectation may be one thing, but God's expectations and God's answers are so much greater and bigger. God deals in the unexpected. This is the love that has come. This table is that extravagant picture of God's redemptive and incredible and empowering love. As we mentioned, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, on that very Thursday, the night that he gathered with all his disciples, he took this loaf of bread after they had eaten dinner. Come on. After he'd eaten dinner, he took this loaf of bread and he gave thanks. And he said, this is my body and it is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, after he had taken the bread, he took the cup and he said, this cup is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. This is the new covenant poured out for you. That as long as you take of this bread and this cup, you are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes again. And essentially, that's what we do this morning. We acknowledge the death and resurrection of Christ and proclaim that until he comes and redeems and rescues us all. This is the outpouring of an extravagant love, a love that is not coming, but a love that has come. A love that entered the city on the back of a baby donkey, turning all expectations upside down. The love that came to not conquer a people, but to conquer death. A love that came not to rule the world, but to establish a kingdom that would never end. This is that picture. 